Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show. There's a new report out on freedom of speech. Uh, we'll chat the twilight zone of UCAS data and data security. Big data week this week. It's all coming up. Earlier this week <laughs> on mon- monocultures in yes. universities. Left-wing um, academics mating with other left-wing academics and producing <laughs> left-wing academic babies. Yeah, exactly. And I, yeah. I don't think it's um, very fair. I, I mean, there is, uh, I mean, yeah, you, what, the people get... breed? <laughs> <laughs> with, like, with like-minded other people? <laughs> exactly. Is it? Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education policy, people and politics. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to polish off the miniature bounties in our celebrations top of HE policy. As usual, we have a superb panel. Uh, first up in South East London, Chief Executive Push and the Engineering Professors Council. Johnny Rich, Johnny, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, probably my... My daughter's um, Christmas assembly, where they celebrated 25 inspirational people as a sort of advent calendar. It was so sweet. In Nam or Cheltenham, as it's more commonly known, Andy Yule is the 80s and HE data specialist. Andy, your highlight of the week. Uh, my highlight of the week has been putting together a list of all of the professional communities around higher education and the love and support I have received from the higher education Twitter community for doing this. <laughs> The, the, the lives we lead. And hiding away in Stornoway, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Um, other than uh, enjoying reading and enjoying Andy's list of higher education professionals, I think my highlight will be uh, the delicious pub dinner that I'm going to have this evening with my uh, lovely husband. Right. So, yes, we start this week with a new report on freedom of speech. Students in the UK are far more concerned about threats to freedom of expression in society than in their own universities, with only a minority having heard about incidents where freedom has been restricted on their own campuses. Johnny, kick us off. Well, this is an issue that's as evergreen as a Christmas tree, but um, with fewer treats and surprises. Today's Wonky Daily, I noticed, said, um, was wondering whether or not this is the survey that will put to bed the idea of universities as left-wing madrasas. Um, I'm afraid not. Uh, It isn't actually just freedom of speech. It's freedom of expression. So that's freedom of speech, freedom, academic freedom, freedom to protest, and freedom from hate. Um, And the long and the short of it is that students don't think that there's a problem in universities. Fewer than one in eight um, thinks that regularly freedom of expression is controlled in any way. Um, And they're far more concerned about what's going on in society outside their universities, which is probably fair enough, given um, everything that's going on in politics, polarised views on Twitter and Facebook and intolerance and so on and so forth. Um, The study splits students up into three groups. The contented, so basically about a small majority of students, Um, basically people who think, yeah, it's fine. Um, The activists um, who think reasonable views do have the freedoms they need, and that's just under about a third. And then then the... Um, and they believe that extremism should be curtailed. And then there's the libertarians who believe in unfettered free speech and worry that a culture of safetyism, bleh, horrible word, um, a culture of safetyism is um, perhaps denying it. And that's fewer than a quarter of students. Um, and those 
those libertarians do tend to have one political slant, which is um, a uh, pro-Brexit one or the pro-Tory one. So, so they are leaning to the right. The one thing, there are two things in here that I found particularly concerning. Uh, one is that there may not be any deliberate um, censorship, but the self-censorship. Uh, the Some people thinking they can't express their views because they won't go along, you know, because they'll disagree with their peers. Um, and the other is that um, a quarter of students thought that violence or shouting people down is a justified response to someone using hate speech or racially charged language. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I'm pretty sure it's not that. Debbie, this, uh, you know, this, this segmentation into contented activist and libertarian, I thought was really interesting. You know, there's, we, we can imagine that, you know, we can see actually over half are contented. The activists, it sounds like, you know, lots of student union officers I know and libertarian sounds like lots of columnists see the on Spike or in the Telegraph. Uh, yes, yeah, we, we know these people. We have studied alongside these people. Um, what, what I like about uh, that approach is is that it's it's looking for uh, ways to account for people's perspectives um, that that don't just kind of go with the usual. So you know, it doesn't sort of say, oh well, if you're a conservative student, you obviously feel more constrained. It's actually as much about attitudes as you know, as with the Brexit vote, it can be about as much as your attitudes and your kind of wider beliefs as about your political affiliations. And and there is examples of, for example, students, fewer examples of students who uh, are politically affiliated with Greens and Labour and Lib Dems and all the kind of you know politically acceptable. Uh, as opposed to on university positions that also say that they feel a bit, uh, they, they may struggle to express their opinions. So I think um, the kind of method, methodologically, it's, it's quite sensible, although, of course, it's not cast iron. You're, you know, what you're talking about is kind of tendencies rather than universal predictors of, of behaviours or views, because, you know, students are very diverse bunch and they've got very diverse experiences. Uh, Andy, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was this framing of four types of you know, kind of concepts and freedoms, academic freedom, free speech, freedom to protest and freedom from hate. And one of the things that I guess happens in the press a lot is that some of those concepts are uh, deliberately conflated. And it's quite interesting to see them kind of held out as things that ought to be held in balance. Yeah. And, and there's always difficulty in this kind of space, isn't there? We, we, we want to put people into neatly defined little boxes uh, around some of these issues and yet some of these issues are so complex and the boundaries between them are so are so blurred um, and there is something I think about this this entire debate because we are dealing with some very complex and very nuanced com- uh, concepts in all of this it's very difficult to define uh, a language uh, that, that, that we can actually have this debate about. I find it enormously encouraging that actually we're talking about freedom of speech and, and you know, for, for all the, the, the issues and all the problems in this space. And I, I, I agree with Johnny. I, I don't think this, this debate's going to go away. But there's, there's part of me that thinks actually, you know, maybe it's, it's actually quite healthy that we keep talking about this because we will hopefully, I think, get to a better understanding about what these concepts are, what they mean, uh, and, and, you know, move to a, a slightly less fraught place with all of this. It is healthy to keep our eyes on this. The, the idea of left-wing madrasas or the idea um, that there is a problem of freedom of speech in our university. I mean, Jim, you've written some excellent stuff on this. It, it's the, the examples, when you dig down into them, you always discover, actually, no, that either it was perfectly reasonable behaviour or, or what happened didn't, or what's been reported to have happened, didn't happen as reported. Um, and in any case, I don't really see a problem here at all. People, I believe 
completely in the right to freedom of speech. I am libertarian when it comes to freedom of speech. Uh, and I believe that universities of all places should be a forum for challenging views to be aired. Uh, but there's a big difference between a freedom of speech and a right to a platform. You don't have a right to a platform if all you're going to add to the debate is bigotry, Katie Hopkins. And you don't have a right to a platform if, all you, if you're not invited, Michael Gove. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> these... The right you're going to, to say Michael Barber then, Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> no, I never. He's always invited. The, the, there's, the problem here is that people think that because they have a right to say things they should have a right to be heard it's completely different if you want to be heard go on twitter and try and attract um, enough attention with your views there and and try not to get blocked or be unreasonable i'll say what you, i'll say johnny you're, I mean, you're, you're obviously kind of correct in the kind of you know specifics of what you're saying about you know how no platforming works but i mean don't you think that the higher education sector needs to kind of convene a response and i think i mean i think what i think what kings has done is really interesting in basically saying right well let, let's try and move this debate forward let's look at the student experience it seems to me also that we have you know the students in the um survey were saying well actually we think we think debate is reasonably civil in our institution but we have concerns about wider society and i think there's something about universities being more kind of positively modeling excellent debate and i would point to some examples of, um, of of perhaps you know forms of debate that we need to move away from. So you know at, at both ends of the spectrum, one being this kind of you know very adversarial. You know you argue one side, you argue the other, and then everyone votes at the end sort of model. And the other being the kind of university seminar where you know somebody speaks for forty five minutes and then someone else says, "Well, I've got more than a comment than a question." And the the, the idea that you know we all move forward in our understanding is a bit you know uh, I, I do I do wonder if there's kind of things that could be done to kind of promote a positive version of, of debate that would actually benefit wider society and kind of challenge people to think about how they can express opinions um, and, and kind of overcome those fears and how people can be respectful of other people's opinions when they are less palatable. And, and Debbie, look, I mean, I, I think the other thing that strikes me is in that kind of libertarian box, which, you know, and, and it is true to say that there are lots of kind of columnists and and so on that flow from this. There are, there are real differences of opinion, aren't there? I mean, I, I guess the Tory view would be we do need more regulation, whereas the kind of spiked view would be any regulation is bad. You know, any anything that, that kind of states do or universities do to kind of regulate and, you know, cause what, what some people call a fair debate um, is, is profound problematic but 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 they, they both have a, an agreed start point spikes uh, view of well you can suppose you could argue spikes view isn't necessarily very helpful but i suppose in the kind of sense of of being you know as, as pure libertarian commentary as you're going to find on, on the he sector i think yeah i mean the the way the way you regulate he is by saying tell me all the ways that you're thinking about this and then providers will say well we're balancing our legal responsibilities in this way and then, and then spike points to it and says well ah but that, 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 you know, you're clamping down on freedom of speech and, you know, universities saying, well, actually, no, we're just complying with the law. So you, you're in a kind of endless, endless circle. Um, how do you kind of address the concerns of libertarian students, I think, is perhaps a more interesting question. Or how do you open up a conversation with those students about um, what, would this, what, what, what might this look like on our campus in assuming that, you know, no, no student wants... Well, actually, that's the thing. I was going to say, assuming no student wants anyone to get hurt, but of course we've got 25% who sort of think that you know, <laughs> they, 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 they wouldn't rely out in extreme circumstances. Um, so, so, so there may be, I mean, there, there, may, there may be a kind of, I guess, extreme where, you know, those students are just not going to be happy. Um, and, I, and I think, um, and I don't think, you know, additional regulation is the answer really because at the end of the day all you can really do is regulate kind of processes and policies you can't regulate relationships and and conversations and that's really where the kind of 
really interesting stuff is happening in this space. This cuts into a um, topic that was raised by a blog at the Higher Education Policy Institute um, mm. earlier this week <laughs> on mono monocultures in yes. universities. Left-wing um, academics mating with other left-wing academics and producing <laughs> left-wing academic babies. Yeah, exactly. And I, yeah. I don't think it's um, very fair. I, I mean, there is... Uh, uh, yeah, you what the people breed <laughs> <laughs> with like-minded like other people. <laughs> exactly. To to accuse academics of um, having views and they shouldn't. They should have. They should adopt other views for fear of um, being a monoculture. You know, people. What we're talking about here is that universities have commonalities academics have commonalities any group has commonalities that's what makes it a group um, and there are so many exceptions to the idea that universities are a monoculture that by the time you've accounted for all those exceptions you've lost the rule completely or, or it or the rule has become so constricted that it only applies to a handful of people in the group and you just have to abandon these ideas universities are diverse places and it's it's people from a particular group who tend to think that they're not and um you don't have to spend long with academics in disciplines across the board to realize quite how diverse both their political views but their cultural views and all sorts of other views are now let's see who's <laughs> been blogging for us this week hi my name's alex freeman and i'm from the university of cambridge science has a fundamental problem at its heart Science is a process of trial and error. And that means that in order to make progress, we all have to share what works and what doesn't. In the 18th and 19th century, that was easy to do. And we invented a method of sending what we call papers and publishing them. But more recently, the paper has its, become itself an, a measure of success. It's as much a CV shop window as a communication of what was done. And this has created a huge overload of papers not each of them, not giving the whole picture. And that's not what science needs. So I'm arguing for a new kind of communication, a new primary research record. Technically, that's easy enough to do, but it needs social and political change to really make this happen. Everybody needs to change the way that they're communicating what they do. And it's only when we do that that science can really make progress. Now, if you go down to the picket line, you're sure of a big surprise. Uh, UCU strikes came to an end, uh, at least for now this week. At the time of recording, action short of a strike is still on. Uh, and Wonky's own David Cunningham popped down to the picket line to soak up the Atmos. Hello, um, my name's Jamie Mowers. I'm an hourly paid teacher uh, here at the University of Bristol, and I'm also the branch secretary for the local UCU branch. Well, I think everyone in UCU who's taken strike action can be proud from what I've seen on social media and speaking to friends and contacts of the convivial atmosphere of the strike. Uh, it's really given people an opportunity to share, share their experience, talk to colleagues, use some fairly creative ways to promote the cause. Um, and the mood and atmosphere, without being too celebrity, I mean, people are losing pay, um, has been great. Well, it's difficult to know where to start, but I think I'll start in 2018, uh, what was christened the Great University Strike by the Times Higher Education, uh, no less, where we took strike action to defend our USS pensions, those of us in the pension scheme and out of the scheme, but the uh, academic pension scheme, or for staff on grades J and above here at Bristol. Um, so that saw us take what was generally regarded as a fairly impressive 
um, set of coordinated strike days, which ultimately saw the employers take off the table um, their decision or their proposal to transform the scheme into defined contribution rather than a hybrid defined benefit scheme. Where are we now? Well, the USS issue is still very much live. We're in dispute about it still and have taken strike action this time to protect any rising contributions rather than just focusing on transforming the benefit side of the scheme. But we're also striking for the pay and equality um, strands of our current dispute. So not just pay, but also workloads, the gender pay gap um, and casualization. So here we are taking action a year and a bit later Yes, over pensions, but also over those pay and equality issues. And I think it's fair to say that whatever the particularities of the individual disputes, as in 2018, as in now, there's clearly what in trade union speak you'd call a massive collective grie- uh, collective grievance amongst um, staff here at um, Bristol and at other universities. They're simply not happy with their lot. I don't know how else you can put it, really. They're just simply cheesed off, to put it euphemistically and mildly, with their current situation. Workload, pay, pensions, equality, it's almost a never-ending list. I think the reaction of the um, senior staff has been, generally speaking, sympathetic. What do I mean by that? Um, We've seen here at Bristol the Vice-Chancellor and other senior managers, Deputy Vice-Chancellors, Pro-Vice-Chancellors, out and about on the picket line talking to staff. Um, And while they're not making any promises, they're certainly acknowledging that collective grievance point that staff clearly are very unhappy with their working conditions here at Bristol in terms of what they're expected to do, the unreasonable workloads, the falling um, rate of pay and the the constant yearly almost changes to their pensions, the amount of casualised contracts that we're seeing, the gender pay gap. Again, here, I feel that I can keep on going on and on and on when it comes to that list. So I think senior management have been listening and it's no longer a surprise or it's no longer an oddity now that staff feel this way, whether that's a majority or even a significant minority. It's clear that that view is one that dominates on campus. So senior management are hearing that. They're taking it on board. And let's see how that actually translates into meaningful action. Um, we hear your pain is one thing, but we'd quite like to see we hear your pain and this is what we'd like to do. This is what we're going to do about it. Now, next up, the UCAS End of Cycle Statistics released last week are rightly a major event in the data year and will be doubtless heavily used by uh, data people and all sorts of others across universities. But there is a growing problem, folks. The twilight zone of the UCAS data, records of prior acceptance, are on the rise. Andy, what on earth is going on here? So there is a wrinkle in reality. There's, there's, there's an odd thing that happens. So UCAS operates the admission service for full-time undergraduate courses. And the theory is that universities, institutions recruit uh, exclusively through UCAS for uh, for those courses that are in the scheme. It is the case that sometimes uh, there will be uh, admissions taken outside of, of the UCAS route. Institutions aren't supposed to do that. Uh, UCAS don't like it. It kind of compromises the system and, and so on. Um, so there is a thing in place where the institutions have to feed back to UCAS data um, about these uh, what they call pr- prior applicants and uh, these prior admissions, um, so that when UCAS publishes the 
total statistics, they can actually include them uh, in, in, in the analysis. Now, the difficulty with these uh, students is, is that we're not really sure who they are. We're not really sure what, uh, what's driving this, this behaviour. But what has happened this year um, is, is that there, there's a lot of them and, and they've been increasing over the last couple of years. There's around 41,000 um, RPAs this year. And that accounts actually for the overwhelming majority of the um, of the increase in in uh, total emissions this year, so um, it's it's becoming an increasingly critical issue. Um, of that forty one thousand, about thirty five thousand are UK domiciled. So you know there is something about overseas activity, but that's not the whole picture. There are questions being raised about you know whether these are people coming in very late in the application cycle, whether there are other issues uh, driving this rise in in direct entrance, and. The, the concern is that um, if you are looking at a time series, if you're looking to 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 to, to analyse changes uh, year on year, uh, then there is potentially a distorting effect coming in uh, with these uh, students that, that we don't really have a handle on. So there's some fog around this, and and um, Mark Corver wrote an excellent piece uh, on on the blog this week about you know the the fog of these RPAs and and at the moment we just don't really have a view uh, we don't really ever have a handle on on uh, what type of students these are Debbie could it be that institutions are kind of deliberately encouraging going around the edges of UCAS and and that, and that is causing some of this statistical uh, snafuery one of two things is happening um, either institutions have been so I mean we've, what, what we've seen is the real spike in the last two years um, and this of course coincides with a kind of significant demographic dip and, and, and kind of general d- uh, decline in uh, the numbers of applications and acceptances across the piece so some universities are going to be actively recruiting differently um, and, and a kind of significant proportion of these RPA students are mature so they may be uh, they may have changed how they how they do business um, and as a consequence are, are uh, recruiting in a kind of in different markets and, 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 and recruiting in more more RPA students. That is one explanation for what's going on. The other is is that uh, universities are recruiting pretty much exactly the same pattern as they always have, but they're reporting differently, um, and they are they're sort of re- reporting more robustly. Um, and I suppose a sort of cynical interpretation of that would be that universities not wanting to be seen to be losing students because that could have a serious impact on their kind of reputation, on credit rating and that sort of thing, um, are, are reporting perhaps where they would not have in the past or where they, where they might have been a bit kind of more uh, slapdash in the past, particularly given that, you know, as, as Mark Corver put it, UCAS char- charges them for the privilege of, of having their, their students' data recorded um, in the UCAS system. Johnny, there are all sorts of interesting theories kind of below the line on, in the comments on the Mark Corver piece from Monday. You know, some people are saying it might be uh, a kind of desperation to fill nursing places, which is interesting in the context of last week's podcast. Uh, some people are talking about kind of direct articulation within a college from level three into levels four and five. What on earth could be going on? Well, the, the answer is we don't know. And I'm not going to speculate. I mean, this, the nursing thing seems to make some sense, but it doesn't account for all of the gap by any stretch of the imagination. It, Andy probably knows whether or not, in fact, you could do a bit of research to um, historically track through the HESA data and com- on actual enrolments um, and compare that with the UCAS data. Yeah, and so you know there there is a comparison that that can be done between uh, the HESA data and the UCAS data, and and it is done, and it is routinely done. Uh, there is, I think, as as Deb has hinted, you know, something about um, institutions wanting to fall in line and and properly. Play, 
play the game with with UCAS and adhere to the rules. Um, and that is important. I think there are also actually other things going on. We are seeing you know a whole load of different uh, providers in the market nowadays. Um, many of them are recruiting uh, through UCAS, although I, I tried to get a list out of uh, UCAS last night of their institutions and, and struggled enormously with the website. Um, but you know there, there is something about broader changes in the sector, different patterns of delivery, different patterns of, of recruitment. Uh, and therefore, you know, this 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 focus on uh, the UCAS applications, it 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 is it is part of our history. It is something that we have traditionally focused on. But actually, higher education is becoming increasingly diverse. The providers are becoming increasingly diverse. UCAS data has has never looked at, at part time entrants, um, and there's a whole swathe of activity that's that's never been in there. And and we we kind of need to just just take a moment and get the UCAS stuff in context. It is important. It is that traditional uh, 18-year-old uh, A-level entrant into higher education, and that is a key market. But there is a lot more happening out there. And with the drive to diversity and different methods, different provision, um, there is something about actually, you know, we mustn't lose sight of the bigger picture around admissions. Debbie, Debbie, admissions reform may be on the cards. We're obviously uh, about to see two reviews, one from Universities UK and one from uh, the Office for Students kick off in in this space. Do we need more and bigger UCAS or a kind of less and smaller UCAS? (laughs) I, yeah, I suppose, yeah, I suppose there's an argument for saying, um, you know, it's become sort of, UCAS has become too big and unwieldy, and and yet it is the kind of predominant route for students. It's kind of well-known, it's got great brand recognition, it kind of, I I suppose like Andy, I would kind of argue for a mixed economy, um, and perhaps for for a a bit more uh, caveating and health warnings associated with the data. Rather than kind of saying let's have let's uh, let, let's axe the kind of system that's that's been doing well, I think I think the real kind of question will come whatever whatever gets proposed. I suspect we're going to see change in the admission system, not because of you know calls for you know post qualification admissions necessarily, but just because, just in recognition that in you know in the English sector particularly the world has changed so significantly in the past decade that you know having this kind of batch process where everyone kind of applies at the same time and, and gets sorted into institutions and, and you know, and then kind of, you know, poodles off to, to do their courses all at the same time of the year just isn't fit for purpose um, in a kind of diverse and complex market. And um, I think this, you know, this, this, I think we, you know, I, I optimistically think there's going to be some quite interesting thinking coming out of, of one or both of these reviews um, that hopefully will address that in a way that moves us beyond this whole kind of do students apply before or after getting their results. Because I think as we know as well, A-level results are they're a feature of the admissions process, but in a, in a certainly in a, in a recruiting market, they're a much lower feature than people tend to assume. Good. Now, every week we're delving deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So records do show sometimes um, the depth of policy interaction between government and higher education. One of those opportunities is when uh, vice-chancellors go to see the Prime Minister. Now, in the late 60s, vice-chancellors were summoned in to see the Prime Minister because their students were so revolting um, that the Prime Minister had to share secret intelligence with them from the security services um, about their their behaviour and and get them to to behave themselves. Uh, Sadly, I couldn't find the notes of that meeting, but I did find the notes of the meeting that Ted Heath had with a group of vice-chancellors in 1973. And he'd widened the group, so not only did he see vice-chancellors, he saw directors of polytechnics as well, because they'd come into being and Margaret Thatcher had not killed them off in her white paper, and so they were going strong. And the file is lovely because it contains the briefing notes 
for the ministers in advance of the of the setup, and it contains the, the, the record of what happened at the meeting. So the briefing notes are, are cheery because they set out for the prime minister what's going on. Um, the vice chancellors are concerned that the government doesn't love them, um, doesn't consider them relevant enough. So so says the uh, the briefing note. However, the polytechnics are in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Um, they want to have the clarification of their role with the local authority um, sorted out, uh, and that they're going to um, be quite happy with the uh, massive expansion, trebling of their student numbers following the white paper. They're up for this, the polytechnic directors. There aren't many notes on the polytechnic directors, but there's this great section whereby each of the vice chancellors has a little note given to Ted Heath to explain who they are uh, and what kind of character they have. So it sets out in, in, in some detail. So Alan Bullock, who's the vice chancellor of Oxford at the time, is a distinguished modern historian, in manner very much the Oxford Yorkshireman, plain spoken, witty, and humane. Um, the first four year Oxford vice chancellor with a year to serve. Um, Dr. Morrison of Bristol is described as one of the younger vice-chancellors, 48, vigorous and open-minded, as well as very intelligent. Professor Armitage of Manchester is a very resourceful man, with an excellent judgement which he chooses to conceal under a bumbling manner. The notes go on, explaining what Ted can expect from each of the vice-chancellors in front of him. And clearly the, the evening goes well, they have a discussion, and it focuses on the key issue of whether universities should be providing thinkers or doers. And the representatives of the polytechnics argue that the major mistake made by universities was to value knowledge for the sake of knowledge. The great majority of graduates pursue their careers in the world of action, not of reflection. And this basic fact should be reflected in university entrance requirements and in final examinations. I'm still waiting for that. Um, at present, the university's approach was too scholastic. So, they set themselves up in opposition. They are the relevant um, institutions providing people with a way into work. And Ted Heath um, sums up, and there's a note uh, picking up, that Heath is critical of the universities who too often fail to teach their students to think straight, to recognise quality, and without a thorough training in the basic intellectual processes, the next generation would need to find themselves to compete. And here's a great example of why we'd need that. To argue the British case successfully in, for example, Paris or Brussels, would call for the highest standards of intellect and ability. At the same time, the education system had a major part in creating a more flexible social structure in the country so that ability, wherever it might be found, could be developed and exploited to the full. Heath wants the universities to help us in our new mission to be in Europe. Um, so, not sure how that's going to turn out, but there we go. Um, that's, that's what universities should really help to do. So Heath, of course, doesn't last long, but Margaret Thatcher is the Secretary of State and she's there and she listens to all of this and obviously participates in the discussion. And when you when she gets into power, you can see that distinction between the, the universities um, and their um, too academic and the polytechnics who are keen to do the work that the government wants to do. And eventually that wins them their freedom uh, at the end of the binary line. And look out over Christmas. History fans will be posting up a Hidden History box set for you to binge on over your mince pies. Now, once nearly every university and higher education provider in the UK was a challenger institution, or as Independent HE's new manifesto styles them, a higher education SME, small medium enterprise. Uh, the changes brought about in the Higher Education Research Act 2017 were supposed to accelerate this process, bringing a fresh wave of new ideas and new provision. But did it happen, Debbie? 
<laughs> no, it did not. Or perhaps it did, but only to a certain extent, which is a much harder uh, sell on the to, uh, as a story. But um, so this week we saw the launch of the independent HE. Uh, well, basically, you know, their, their pre-election manifesto. Every sector uh, body does one. But what, what we've seen here is a really clever bit of rebranding from independent HE. So we know that uh, that part of the sector, the independent part, has has really struggled with finding a name that everyone can, that doesn't um, just uh, sort of sort of bit you know. You know, define those sorts of providers as being not uh, the, the, the universities that we kind of know and love. Um, so I think saying, uh, particularly in the context of a kind of declining interest in private providers uh, and independent providers f- from within government since the departure of Joe Johnson as as HE minister, you know, the, you know, the independent sector has had to sort of rethink its approach and and it's come up with this SME idea, um, which ties into kind of. Uh, thinking around innovation, around productivity, around kind of support for kind of uh, new businesses and, and and the kind of need for uh, a, you know, a particular part of a kind of sector economy to be supported and to grow. And so they're calling for things like an SME champion for higher education inside government. Um, they want a kind of particular SME export plan as part of the international education strategy. They want startup loans to kind of get, get provision up and running, um, particularly which meets skills needs. Otherwise, they make the kind of very sensible point that otherwise all of the provision will basically be in London. Um, and it, it, it's, it's all some quite, quite interesting stuff. Um, of course, the background to this as well is that, um, these independent providers have really struggled with, um, getting on the register and, and in, the, in working with OFS. And, um, there was a open letter from Alex Pridefit at Independent HG earlier this month, basically, uh, to, to the OFS, basically saying, you know, this, this has been really, really challenging for us. And, and, you know, we really need you to kind of sort this out. Um, that, you know, they find it incredibly burdensome. Um, They've, you know, they've, they've certainly not felt that there's been a level playing field put in place as, as was promised in the Higher Education Research Act. Um, and David Kernahan has written a fantastic piece uh, based on some conversations with independent providers on, uh, on the site this week, kind of exploring some of those challenges. I think that the reason that Joe Johnson, David Willett, all these um, free market fans wanted to open up the market was that they thought that this would bring in a rush of innovative institutions wanting to push the envelope and think outside the box and and so on. And this would herald a new age of improved standards. Well, standards didn't weren't actually low to start with, let's remember that. But the problem with free market fans is that they often think if we just deregulate, then if we build the lack of regulations, then they will come. Anybody who has actually run a small business, started up a small business, realizes that the fundamental thing that you need is a market. You need people who want what you're trying to sell. And there is not a huge market out there amongst students or amongst employers for these new challenger institutions. It is far more risky to be a student going into a new challenger institution. So you're not, they're going to not really appear on those students' radars when it comes to choice. They're just not going to even think about them. So they have a huge barrier to entry just from a market perspective, and, you know, just from a marketing perspective, I should say. And then there are market rules perspectives. Yes, the hurdles to get into the market in terms of regulation are very high. But nobody owes these institutions a lower hurdle than any any other institution. Perhaps we should be lowering the hurdles for everybody in terms of market entry. We should find ways to make entry make entry easier. And Alex has laid out some really Alex Proudfoot in his piece for Wonky has laid out some 
really good and sensible proposals there, especially around um, dealing with skills needs. But there, what he's doing is he's appealing to the state to say, we need startup loans from the state to provide for um, skills needs. In other words, um, trying to um, get favours from the state for private institutions. I've got nothing against private institutions. I've got nothing against people making a profit um, out of high, out of education. People make profit out of all sorts of parts of society. And so if we just suddenly say, you can't make profit in higher education, that, that seems a bit inconsistent. Um, but the question is, if people have shareholders at the heart of their interests, do they also have as much concern for students at the heart of their interests? If they do, brilliant fine they are welcome and i have no objection to somebody providing a great education and somebody else getting rich that that's not a problem um so long as they then pay their taxes what is a problem is if they don't provide a good education or they expect favors um or lower standards to get in Andy, there's a funny little thread in the report that came out this week from the Children and Young People's Committee in Wales about their kind of regulatory system where there's a kind of debate about what risk-based regulation means. You know, what, what's the bigger risk, a kind of challenger provider that isn't established and so on, or a massive provider where an individual student could get lost and their outcomes aren't looked at? And certainly in Wales, there were, you know, the traditional universities were complaining that there, there appeared to be more scrutiny on traditional universities than the kind of tiny challenger universities. And, and I guess it's tricky. Where, where do you put most of your attention if you're trying to regulate on risk uh, i th- i think that's a really difficult question because i there's there's something about these them being very different types of risk um i wouldn't like to stick my neck out as, as to say which is the larger risk i i, I think a, a good regulatory system needs to recognize those different types of risk and 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 respond to it and i think there is something uh for me that comes through uh this conversation and, and particularly the stuff coming out of uh independent age um the idea that you know they're they're struggling in a regulatory framework that is designed for uh, a particular type of higher education provider um, and that idea that you know if, 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 if you look like a traditional university a, a traditional higher education provider then you will actually fit into this regulatory framework better than if you're you're a challenger institution so I, I, I think there's something about you know the, the extent to which we're looking at a one-size-fits-all approach uh, to, to, to regulation. We saw that um, a few weeks ago when, uh, was it Barking and Dagenham College um, failed to get on the register uh, and took OFS to court uh, around this, um, and they ended up arguing around the data and the metrics uh, in court. And the OFS line was that, you know, we, we are going to apply the same thresholds to all providers, you know, and we're not going to take into account differences between different types of provider. And so I think there is something in this um, about, you know, having regulatory frameworks that, that, that have the ability to flex and recognise uh, the different types of provision. I do also want to pick up on on one point that um, uh, that Johnny picked up about you know the, the the whole marketing dimension to this and and this idea of challenger institutions will just come in and and compete in 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 this market and there is something I think that a lot of people uh, have missed in putting this whole thing together the the idea that the higher education market uh, is driven enormously on the idea of heritage um, and people tend to equate heritage and history with 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 being high quality and being good um, and I think you know there is a there, there's a big problem there for, for new providers and challenger providers coming in because they don't have that 
uh, history. Look, look, look around the sector at, at institutions that have become universities in, in the last decade or two, and their websites will talk about their centuries of history um, in, in, in different forms. And I think that, that idea of heritage being good, I think that's actually a huge barrier uh, in terms of establishing uh, yourself in this marketplace. What we're talking about is a market that at the moment is defined entirely by student demand rather than by skills demand. And somehow someone is along the line has to say, is what we're providing in this market where students are the customers providing um, enough in terms of uh, outputs for a market where employers are the customers and where wider so- the needs of wider society and economy uh, is the customer. And, there you go, and the, so, so, those so, two so, don't so, match. So, so there you go. Johnny Rich proposes the return of student number controls. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? <laughs> Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that is always ready to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. There's a peculiarity about the 2012-13 graduating cohort in England. We have data about their destinations by institution after one year from the initial experimental LEO release and after three and a half years from the longitudinal DLHE. But when you plot the two together, is there a relationship? Yes, but does it correlate? So I think I think in theory it should correlate, but actually we know that there is a lot of movement in those early career years um, and we know that uh, you know that the three and a half year Delhi has has thrown up some significantly different results uh, to the six month Delhi um, so I'm going to stick my neck out and say no it doesn't correlate I'm going to say that like Andy I think there should be a really close correlation if the data sets are good but there are so many flaws and gaps in each data set so many movements in reality that are not reflected by either of the data sets that when when and because those those peculiarities of each data set are so different i'm gonna say that there is a correlation but it's nowhere near as strong as you'd expect if the data was actually getting anywhere close to the truth which I suppose leaves strong correlation available for for, for making the argument. Um, you could go for inverse. <laughs> Good point. In, yeah, inverse correlation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, I'd, I'd say kind of um, moderate correlation, but I don't really have a basis for that. I suspect that. Um... The answer is no, not really. R squared is 0.23, suggesting a very limited relationship. Part of the difference might be explained by changes over time, though there is a much stronger relationship if you plot two arbitrary years of LEO data together. But I'd also suggest there is a reporting difference between survey and administrative data approaches. Data is from HESA and DFE and is for England only. And where the data doesn't exist, I have not plotted it. And finally, the Higher Education Policy Institute has published new research about students' views on da-da-da data security. The survey of over a thousand full-time undergrads undertaken for Happy and Tribal shows all sorts of things. So, Andy, what are those things that it shows? Gosh, so this is such an interesting area, and and we could talk about this for hours, but unfortunately, we don't have the time. It is uh, the key thing I think for me that comes out of this report. An excellent piece of work, Rachel Hewitt at uh, Happy has done uh, a brilliant piece of work on this, and I think there is something really uh, interesting about 
the way data security is perceived against the reality uh, of uh, data security and in, in information security issues. Um, so obviously a whole load of students, thousand students have been given this questionnaire and have been uh, invited to think about things that maybe they wouldn't think about previously. And this kind of goes back to the uh, issue we were talking about earlier around freedom of speech. Um, so they've gone through the questionnaire, they've thought about things, they've come up with some, some very principled issues. You know, they, they want their data to be secure, they want to have access uh, to, to what the, the universities are holding um, about them, uh, and and of course, you know, they 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 are concerned that, that the universities are or are not uh, behaving ethically or are behaving competently uh, around their data. Um, and yet, I have a suspicion that within minutes of finishing uh, completing this survey, those thousand students were out um, spewing the contents of their lives on social media, <laughs> um, because because that's how we all operate nowadays, isn't it? Um, so for me, the headline out of this is. Is, you know the perception uh, of data security and then the way uh, we behave and actually the actuality of, of, of the risks and, and and issues around this I think there's a big issue here so it's 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 about communications and it's about how we engage with people I, I suppose I've got a question about and, and maybe this is a question for, you know back back to you Andy is I find myself when reading this survey thinking yes but use of data is governed by the law so and, and, and of course as individuals we need to be kind of you know thoughtful about what personal data we put out there and are the organisations we're giving it to making the best use of it. But I do sort of wonder if this is one of those issues where surveying students about what their preferences are almost feels a bit sort of like we're giving them the impression that they their preferences are relevant when when it is governed by the law. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it certainly is governed by the law. I, I think in general there are there are two kinds of, of data uh, problem data issue. One is uh, the issue of competence. Um, so are universities competent in, in handling data properly uh, or not? Uh, and and I think, you know, certainly from what I've seen of, of, of the sector over the last couple of years, I think universities have responded very well uh, to the GDPR uh, regulations. Uh, I, I would observe that by their very nature, universities are probably actually very difficult organisations um, to uh, get to, to full compliance because of the nature uh, of how they operate and the fact that they are often uh, many quite powerful, almost independent uh, organisations within within an organisation. So I think that there's a big challenge there uh, around competency, um, a, a, around adhering to the law. The, the other question is it then uh, around um, data issues is 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 not about competence. It's it's about is the organisation evil? Um, and I I. I don't think universities are evil, um, and I don't actually think that you know those who collect data uh, and use data for regulation and policy in general are, they are not evil. I think you know there, there are some bad things that happen in that space, um, but I, 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 I think for me it's more about competence um, and the ability to adhere to the law. You're absolutely right, though. I mean, the, the, the law is very clear on what um, organisations should and should not be doing with data. The other thing, the other thing that jumped out for me was uh, the difference, I suppose, between one's personal data and about the, the things that one may know about you as an individual. So things like your medical history, you know, passport information, um, academic performance, that sort of thing, and aggregated, anonymized personal data used for wider purposes within the institution. And this is where I think it gets quite interesting. It's, it's not a hundred percent. In some cases, it's quite clear that students knew which they were talking about, um, but not in every case. I think in in this survey, and it may be that we just don't have that kind of methodological information. But um, it it it, it seems it seems to me that by and large. Um, it, it sort of it makes sense to anonymise and aggregate some forms of data to help inform the wider policy environment, and and, and we do that habitually all the time. You know, admissions data being a really good example. Um, 
but of course we don't we don't kind of pinpoint individuals as part of those data sets because that would be inappropriate and and that's that's just part of the picture here but i I don't know to what extent students have a grasp of the difference or 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 or, or which bits of data apply across each of those categories yeah and i think i mean i i think there's a kind of another category here which is the sort of things that institutions learn about students or the things that students will confidentially share with an with, with an institution you know the the uh, I was thinking about this from a student union perspective uh, this morning when we put an SU briefing out on this. And, you know, th- there aren't student union officers that, that swept to victory with a giant promise of enhanced data security. You know, that's not what they promise. They promise <laughs> cash points and, you know, cheaper catering and things. But, uh, you know, when there was a big data breach when I was at UEA, and that was a data breach that was around... Um, you know, someone had compiled all of the extenuating circumstances, details that students had submitted onto an Excel sheet and it was shared inappropriately with lots of people. The devastation that causes, and that's not stuff that, you know, students were putting on Instagram or Twitter. And, and, I, and I guess the question, Johnny, is how, how do you how do you get institutions interested in something that really does quite often feel like kind of dredge and compliance? You know, how, how do people, how can people get excited about this given so, the, the real problems that it can sometimes cause? Well, I don't, I don't know that they do need to be more excited about it, data compliance and they, or data security than they already are. It is about compliance. It is about being responsible. And of course, universities should explain what they do with data. And of course, they should make those explanations plain and simple. And of course, they shouldn't allow unnecessary data to be collected. They shouldn't misuse the data they do collect and they shouldn't fail to protect it. But a lot, let's, let's remember why they're collecting data in the first place. It's because a lot of it is very useful to all concerned. You know, let's remember learning analytics, for example, can really help p- academic performance. They can help engagement. They can help, help people get to their horrible expression, value for money when it comes to their um, uh, higher education. It can prevent dropout. So before we start catastrophizing the downside, let's remember the upside here. And and also, I noticed in some of the things I just don't believe in this research. Not that I don't believe the respondents actually said that, but they only said that because they were asked the question. Two thirds said that they would base their university choice on secu- data security. No. No, I'm afraid they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They really wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and put that in the um, test. Put that in the test. LFS, go on. Forty-six <laughs> percent said that universities didn't explain data uses clearly when they enrolled. But actually, I I wonder yeah, how I, many of I'm, those forty-six sure percent. Yeah, I bet they they just didn't read the terms and conditions because yeah, yeah. who does? Yeah, who and if the universities had held data use explaining workshops in Freshers' Week, I'm not sure that forty-six percent of students would have been turning up. Uh, you know. People don't really care as much about this as as they think they ought to, and that is fine. But universities need to operate ethically; they need to operate responsibly, and for the most part, they do. And they need to be slapped over the wrist when they forget to. So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com, where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory, or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com, and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Johnny, Andy, and Debbie, to the crew from Team Wonky for making the show happen behind the scenes, and of course, to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> 